Welcome to the Pubcast, your inside look at electronic publishing. From ebooks to websites to podcasts and more, join us as we interview the professionals on the cutting edge of publishing. Tonight, I'm going to be talking with Farah Jones, and she is the Intellectual Property Project Manager at Cengage Learning, which is a textbook company based out here in Boston, in fact. And uh, Farah, if you could elaborate a little bit for our listeners on what your job position entails. Sure. Um, so we make textbooks in print and ebook format and also other educational products like videos and multimedia products that are used. I work for higher education, so it would be things that you encounter in your classrooms. Actually, one of the first books I worked on at Cengage, I thought sounded really familiar. And then one day I was sitting in my living room and realized that I had the previous edition of the book from one of my freshman year classes at Emerson. So that's the content. I mostly work on um, fine arts, music, mass media, world language, and literature. And as a project manager in the intellectual property department, anything that's considered creative content that's going into the product or textbook has to go through me, Um, whether it's painting, fine art, photography, music, music lyrics in terms of publishing or whether it's audio, video, um, magazine articles, pieces of literature, anything like that uh, has to go through our department. So I work with others to make sure that it's properly acquired and licensed and integrated into the project. And then I, so I work on the project from that starting point until it goes into production. And that is what I do. All right. That's really cool, actually. Thanks. A lot of people don't think about what goes into our textbooks. I'm sure most people are actually probably dreading to crack one open. (laughs) So you've done a lot of work in the past with music in some form, especially as far as audio engineering and incorporating it into electronic publishing projects. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Sure. Um, I So I started out at Emerson as a broadcast journalism major, and I... I continued writing, but I wanted to study something a little bit more in the background. Um, that year, they come out with some new majors, including post-production, sound design. But I, I chose post-production at the time. And then as I continued, I kind of steered myself more in the audio realm and did my senior project on film score. I took classes at Berkeley, so I was kind of leaning more on the music side. And because of that, my internship senior year was at Soundtrack Studios. So I interned in the recording studio, but I also helped out with their music publishing company, their sister company. And that included registering music with ASCAP and BMI, which are the performing rights organizations. And then my first role out of Emerson was as a production assistant for a educational media company called VPG, it's now called Vital Source. Right now, they focus a lot on EPUB. At the time, we were doing a lot of audio and video for ebooks. So my first job was basically recording all the voiceovers for the ebooks we were working on and syncing them, doing quality assurance, scheduling the recording sessions, engineering them, sometimes helping out with casting and anything like that. And then I worked my way up to associate producer there working with a, another client that was sort of a children's series, a weekly children's news series, interactive media type of thing. 
set up in the shell of an ebook. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, so I did the audio video and the producing for that and any of the other technical quality assurance. Uh, really tight turnaround schedule, which was definitely uh, kind of a learning curve, but similar to a lot of the stuff that you see as an undergrad in terms of getting an assignment on a Monday and then having to get it out on a Friday at a certain hour. Um, because it was news, you kind of had to, it, it all had to be current, up-to-date topics. I wanted to work more with music, so I worked at uh, First Act's studio called 745. I It's kind of dwindled down now, but I was working on music apps in the audio department. I also worked on the music publishing and licensing because I had a background in it from my internships. And then I was laid off, unfortunately, which does happen a lot in music and production jobs. So thankfully, I had kept in touch with my former coworkers at Vital Source. So then I was a freelance producer, audio engineer, until I started my role at Cengage. And one reason why I got the role at Cengage is because I had a background and a knowledge of music licensing based on my role at First Act and my internship while I was at Emerson. So it kind of came full circle. And Cengage was a client at my first job, so it was just kind of like a big loop. <laughs> but it worked out. Funny how it all works out that way, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, Boston is, you know, after a while, you, you kind of know a lot of the different people in the different publishing and production houses. So it's a tight-knit community. That's definitely what I've heard and have seen, actually. A lot of my uh, fellow classmates are having internships elsewhere. When the people think of textbooks, they usually are holding a physical textbook in hand. They usually don't have an ebook version, mostly because it can be difficult for them to, you know, view or read an ebook. But, you know, how would how does Sungage approach their ebooks? I guess it's a little different for me because I see it from the legal department standpoint and I can't because of other legal issues, I can't like say definitely see a difference in terms of the refreshing of content. Um, the more we see digital content, the easier it is for us to update stuff. And I see this even as uh, from other ebook projects that I've worked on outside of Cengage. It's easier to keep content current because you don't have to keep a term limit for a very long time. With a print product, you see a lot of reselling. So you have to make sure you're covered for the amount of time that that product is being on the used market for. Whereas the digital is not much of a used market because you can lock it down a lot easier, which is helpful in some ways. I know students might not think it's as helpful because it's not as easy to just get a used copy of something or share it. But in the long run, I think it's going to make products more accessible and a little bit cheaper, and hopefully for students and more up to date because we can, it's a more fluid product. It's just kind of interesting to think about how to implement audio into electronic publishing because there's a lot of people who, you know, they're used to podcasts and stuff like that, but not, not necessarily the implementation of audio into ebooks as sort of like a fusion between like your typical novel and an audiobook. It's just kind of an interesting era of electronic publishing we're going into. Definitely. One of the big pieces of feedback I was told recently was that students were enjoying the electronic format because if they didn't have time to read something, they could listen to it while they were vacuuming or, you know, cleaning or something like that and at least retain some of the knowledge that way instead of having to sit down. I admit that I'm a little old fashioned. I like sitting down with a, you know, I go to the library like every week and check out books and, you know, I don't 
you know, I read the physical book, but I also love podcasts and I can see how that's vital to someone with a busy schedule. Yeah, I haven't even thought about having a textbook being read to me while I'm doing something. I should probably try that, actually. <laughs> but yeah, that's just a really interesting idea. The whole notion of, you know, making it more accessible for students. Obviously, you know, students are going to moan and cry about not necessarily being able to sell the ebook after they're done with it, but you do make some really good points there. I actually had a classmate when we were going over ebooks. She was like, How on earth can music and narration be implemented into an ebook? And I guess she was thinking of an EPUB or a more rigid format that necessarily can't necessarily encompass those extra things in order to satisfy her curiosity and probably a bunch of other people's as well. You know, could you kind of like go into that? Um, sure. I guess it all kind of depends on whatever the um, client or vendor who's making this product, um, what they've designed is what we would call the shell. So for instance, at Cengage, we have these different products that go with ebooks called MindTap, and they're usually topic specific. So I could be working on a speech one, I could be working on one that goes with a specific textbook. However, our development team has produced that, that's where we would embed a lot of the interactive features. So it might not necessarily be an EPUB of Gardner's art with just the art and the text. Um, if someone wants to make, like if I'm working on a music or um, a product that has to do with mass communication media and like sound design, and they want to have a product that goes with that, that you could hear music or you could hear scales, like here's an example of the diatonic scale or something, there would be a different product for that that would launch the audio files. Yeah, or a lot of the other products I worked on from the vendor standpoint in production, it's sort of the same thing. Like everyone has their own product and designs it a certain way that's kind of their top secret. And however you design that from a developer standpoint, they would make that and then that's where we embed kind of all the goodies in the files. So you would kind of work on those files the same way you would for, you know, like when I work on audio or video, I make those files the same way, but I just make sure that it's in a file format that's acceptable for whatever product it is that you're embedding it. And then normally, wouldn't you have to compress all of that stuff after the fact to make sure that it wouldn't take up a huge space on the end users, you know, whatever device you're using to access the content? Yep, so we just make sure that we're, you know, we're using the correct codecs and everything like that. I saw a few years ago people were you know, some of the products we worked on were in Flash, they were switching over to HTML5, and that meant that you had to really have much more variety in the file formats, depending on whatever browser somebody was using. There are variations like that, but usually it's kind of tailored to whatever the developer makes the shell of the product as. It's all on a developer-by-developer developer basis, basically, as far as the media projects are concerned. Knowing from Having worked on the production side, I, I'm thinking everyone to be a little different and I wouldn't want to, a lot of those things are sort of like trade secrets in terms of how they build the product um, or like under copyright. But you kind of put it in the same way that you would put it for any other interactive media thing online in terms of audio and video files. So there's no universal standard for any of that yet? Standard in terms of like if you know what you're going to 
display it. And like if I worked on products that were all in HTML5, I would know that there are certain types of file formats I shouldn't use or something like that. But once you're, if you're working in-house with a production team, you kind of know which, what the file size should be, what format it's going to be in for the specific product. Or, you know, if you need to have different ones, depending on who your user is, they could be using it in different browsers. And then you have to make sure that you're making files that are compatible with those browsers. So you were talking earlier about um, licensing for ebooks and how that's different from print. Does that differ on a media by media basis? Like, is that different for, say, licensing a song? Is that different from licensing a like a vector drawing that somebody's done for a scientific purpose? Yep, an intellectual property standpoint in general, each type of medium has their own sort of licensing standards. Something that's really tricky that I find a lot of people might not realize is that when you, if you want to license a song for anything really, for any type of product or project that you're working on, uh, a, a recorded song has two different levels of licensing. You have the licensing for the physical written down version of the song, but you also have the licensing for the recording. So you could have the publishing rights, but then you also have to have a sync license, maybe, or a mechanical license, depending on how you're using it. But if you're just using the lyrics or the sheet music, that would be the publishing license. Um, if you have fine art, for instance, you could just license for whoever owns the fine art. Um, a lot of the fine art I work with, you likely have to get the file rights from maybe a museum or something, but you would also need the rights from the estate of the artist. If the artist has been dead for a long time, but there's an estate for them, then you would still need that license, which can be surprising sometimes. You could say, well, that artist has been dead for a long time, but copyright standards are in a constant state of flux these days. There's a lot going on because of digital media that a lot of these copyright laws are going to have to, I think, they're going to have to change because we're seeing that they haven't really caught up to the digital world. So it can get a little confusing. But yes, there it's different to license different types of media or any type of content. Yeah, it's kind of boggling for some people to think about in you know an era where we can right-click and save any picture pictures on, on the internet that we would want to our desktop and then we could get that printed and then when we go to use it in an actual professional project you know suddenly we're faced with the whole prospect of licensing and that can be really intimidating for someone who's you know up until then you know just downloading stuff for the sake of downloading mm -hmm. it's, it's definitely and then you get the whole there are territories oh you didn't even think of that uh you know sometimes there are articles or pieces from books or music is very much into different territories as well you might be able to get the license but then they'll say that's only for north america we don't own the license for the rest of the world and then you have to go find that yeah that must be a pain to track down <laughs> sometimes it is it's it's so interesting i find it the reason why i enjoyed music licensing to begin with is because i'm a huge nerd for things like name that tune and i love trivia so it's just like extra hardcore trivia <laughs> Like, you know the song, you know who wrote it, but who owns the publishing rights? Who owns the recording rights? Sounds like any Emerson student interested in trivia should probably pursue a career in publishing intellectual property then. <laughs> it's, it, a lot of the people in my department have a either an archiving background, library science, or a few of my other coworkers were like photography, art, or like film studies majors. 
So I, I definitely see where that interest kind of pulls into it. It's kind of a variety of majors Then you're not necessarily locked down to being a, you know, you don't have to be a WLP student to get into publishing necessarily if you want to do intellectual property. That's interesting. Yeah, and I mean, definitely our, our lawyers are all intellectual property lawyers and things like that. But, um, my supervisors are have either publishing background or arts and archiving backgrounds. The other jobs that I've had in digital publishing, I worked with a lot of people who had film background, graphic design, audio, video, art, those types of majors and somehow got into ebook publishing because from the production side. So a few of my other friends who went to Emerson for audio work for basically ebook companies or like Audible companies like that because there's just been such a need for that for ebooks. Yeah, that's just a really interesting idea to see how, you know, the ebook can actually encompass a whole variety of things. It doesn't necessarily have to be text and the occasional image. Mm-hmm. And a lot of our content developers um, are experts in the field that they're working in, so to speak. So if we have people working on world language books, a lot of them were language majors. A lot of the people who work on our fine art books were art history majors. So they're they're experts in the specific field, but they're working in ebook publishing basically because they have that knowledge and they know they, they care about the content, which is great because they they know what it's like to study that. So they want the content to be good and relevant. Well, I think that about addresses all the questions that I had prepared today. Oh, okay. Yeah. Thank you for giving your time. This has been the Pubcast. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback by visiting us on the web at www.thepubcast.org. Thank you.